0: What's up everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen. What if I told you that there's a solid biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around, but We do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message.
1: Hello, my name is Rob Oshesti. I am the podcast manager here at Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Did you hear? We are hosting a free theological conference called the Image of God Conference on November 11th and 12th, 2022. Guest speakers include Jim Weidner from Harvest USA, Dr. Barry York, Dr. C.J. Williams, Dr. Richard Gamble, and Dr. Jeff Stuyvesant from the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you are interested, please go to gospelfellowshippca.org for more information and to register. Hope to see you there on November
0: 11th and 12th. Let's grab our Bibles. We are in Revelation 2 this morning, Revelation 2. We're going to be looking at the second of seven letters here in verses 8 through 11, the letter to the church in Smyrna. So when you find that in your Bible, let's go ahead and stand up together. As we recall that God's word is inspired, it is the infallible word, the authoritative word of the true and living God. Inerrant in all that it teaches, let's listen to it as the word of our King and our Maker. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8-11. through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His holy word. You may be seated. So this morning, we're in the second of seven letters now. We introduced them briefly last week. I just want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, as I told you last week, these seven letters together, they form a literary structure that we call a chiasmus. It's sort of an A, B, C, B, A pattern in which the first church and the last, the first and the seventh churches, they are in the roughest spiritual shape. And the second and the sixth churches, the second of which we're going to look at today, the Church of Smyrna, are actually in the best spiritual condition. So we're going to see one of the churches that has very little, by the way, of rebuke. In fact, no rebuke at all today. We'll see that again when we come back to Philadelphia. The other churches, three, four, and five, are somewhat middling in their performance. And so we're going to see... A mix of commendation and critique when we get to those churches. I also mentioned last week, just by way of introduction, that each one of these letters, also within it, within each one of the letters, they have a covenantal form wherein we see something about the great king who is the sovereign and lord. We see various of these critiques and commands that are given to the churches followed by blessings and warnings for obedience and disobedience, respectively. And so they do tend to follow this sort of Old Testament covenantal pattern that is sometimes called a suzerainty treaty. Now this morning, as we look into the second of these seven letters, there is something that I forgot to mention last week, but I want to make a little bit more of this week. And that is that at the beginning of the letter where we see something of that vision of Christ from chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I wanted to mention that what we see recalling of that prior vision that we already looked at is of special pertinence to each one of those seven churches. In other words, Christ reminds them of that holy attribute that he bears that is specifically relevant to their own situation And struggles, and I think that comes out very clearly here in this letter to the Smyrna church, because this is a church that's going to be dealing with quite a bit of persecution. And so notice that it's interesting what that what Christ reminds them of about His own nature here in verse eight. It starts off like this: "To the angel of the church in Smyrna, writes this, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life." Now that's going to be very comforting to a church that's going to be experiencing persecution because Christ calls himself here the first and the last. And this is not new language for those who know their Old Testaments, and we know that Revelation draws a lot of language from the Old Testaments. Some may very well recall that God calls himself the first and the last three times in the book of Isaiah, which we've already previously exposited in another sermon series. And so when God speaks of himself as the first And the last, interestingly, that comes in a portion of Isaiah in which the people are very much beaten down and downtrodden and what they really need to hear the most is a word of comfort that God is still in control. And so when God calls himself the first and the last and when Christ calls himself by that same divine language, what he is reminding his people is is this, that from the beginning to the end, he has everything under his sovereign control. That there is no detail of all of history that exceeds the boundaries of his own sovereign reach. So for Christ to say that he is the first and the last is the same thing as to say that he is sovereign, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, that his reach is omnipresent, that the people have nothing to fear because God is absolutely in control. The Smyrnans are going to need to hear a word of comfort like that as they hear the letter that is written Them. Secondly, notice too that Christ also calls himself the one who died and came to life. And we're going to hear a little bit about death today in our letter. In fact, we've even been saying that in our monthly memory verse here that we are to be faithful unto death, and that if we are, Christ will then reward us with the crown of life. And Jesus here reminds us that no matter what they do to you, even if they take away your life in persecution, I am the one who has overcome death and the grave. He is the one who is the resurrected and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with that, by way of introduction, the Smyrnans are already receiving some of the benefits of the comforts of the attributes of God and his Christ, ruling and reigning over them and especially loving them, right? Right? So let me say a little bit about Smyrna because we probably don't know this church as well as we know Ephesus. Last week we looked at the letter to Ephesus and we knew something of it because there is a New Testament letter called the Ephesians. We also see an extended stay of the Apostle Paul three years in the city of Ephesus. So we're somewhat familiar with that church. We probably have not heard much of the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is not really mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. We don't really hear of it's being founded in the book of Acts in particular so, what we assume is that the Smyrna church was probably planted by Ephesian Christians because these cities are only about 25 miles apart. In fact, if you look at the coastline of the Aegean Sea in modern day Turkey, then it was called Asia Minor, you kind of go around this almost antler horn shaped peninsula from Ephesus on the south, go around that peninsula up to the top again, and you're in the city of Smyrna, not far away. Right, by a, by a journey over land or even by sea. Now, here's what I can tell you about the Smyrna city. It was a rich city. Riches are going to be mentioned in this text as well. They're a very wealthy port trading city. We might think of a San Francisco or something like that with access to ships coming in and out. The Smyrnans, it seems, dealt with myrrh as one of their main export commodities. You can even hear it in the name Smyrna. It comes from the root word myrrh, which is their main export. And so they had the benefit of material wealth here. And not only that, but we know this about the city of Smyrna, that this is the hometown of the great poet Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So two of the most famous literary works in the ancient world. This was the hometown of Homer, so they boasted about that. And not only that, but we also know this, that they competed for and won a contract in AD 26 to build a temple to Tiberius Caesar. There was a contract bid for that. The Smyrnans won it, and they built a glorious temple to Tiberius Caesar that helped to inaugurate this whole enterprise of emperor worship, which would become part of The Pantheon of Rome, not only did they worship the pagan gods of Zeus and the others in the Pantheon, but they also worshiped their own emperors. And so the Smyrnans were particularly proud of this temple to Tiberius Caesar, a mere man, and yet they worshiped him as a god, and that too is going to become relevant as we look here at this letter. So the Smyrnans, if you can imagine a small Christian church, um, in the overlap of material wealth paganism, and authoritarian state control, those three things, if you're in the overlap of those three circles, that's a particularly dangerous place to be as faithful Christians. Again, material wealth, paganism, and authoritarian state control, you find yourself in the midst of that, and that's going to be a difficult place to live out a faithful Christian experience, and this is why Christ is speaking through the Apostle John here, does not rebuke the Smyrna church, but rather, for the most part of this letter, he merely commends them for their faithfulness. They have not yet bent to the ways of this world. In fact, they're doing everything they can, small and weak though they may be, to stay faithful to their Lord. Now this morning, I want to give you just a brief outline here, three points. Uh, we're going to look first of all at the commendation that Christ gives to this church. Secondly, we'll look at the situation in which they find themselves. And thirdly, then, the exhortation that these, he's going to give them to stay faithful. Those three words rhyme, and you are welcome for that. I worked hard on that this week. Commendation, situation, exhortation. I'm kind of proud of that outline, so, so there you go. All right, number one, let's dig into it here. First of all, the commendation in verse 9. Look at this. Christ says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Why are they experiencing poverty? Probably because they're being squeezed out of the markets. Right? They're being excluded from the wealth of this poor trade because of their faithfulness to Christ. And so Jesus says to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And not only do I know your poverty but the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I'm going to come back to that line here in just a moment, but let me say something to you, if I can, about real riches and poverty, right? And I think we all know this, but I just want to be clear here this morning that there are two, there are two kinds of riches in this world, right? And they're, they're opposed in many senses. There is, there's those kind of riches that you can uh, hold in your hand, that you can weigh on a scale, that you can add to a ledger, and, quite conversely, there are the invisible riches of the things that this world knows not of. Namely, faithfulness, piety, righteousness, truthfulness, justice. And I'm going to simply tell you this, I know you already know this, that you're going to meet people that have different priorities than you when it comes to these two kinds of riches, the invisible and the tangible. On the one hand, you are legitimately going to meet people that have both. They have, they have material wealth and they have spiritual wealth. And when you meet people like that, I just challenge you, do not be jealous of them. God is doing something different in their lives than he is different in doing in your life. That's fine. There are rich and faithful believers in the Bible, Abraham, King David among them. And these people, if you're one of them, God bless you. Um, God holds all of us accountable for how many talents we have, whether it's five or two or one. So if you know somebody that has both kinds of riches, don't be jealous. God's doing something else right, with them than you. And not only that, but you're going to know people that have neither spiritual riches nor material riches. Pity those people because their existence is miserable. And if you ever wonder why people are are so hard-shelled and callous and sometimes people can be very abrasive in their personalities if they have not the wealth of this world and they don't have at least that spiritual perspective to see it through, no wonder they're so pitiably miserable. Pray for them. They need your help. Most of us, however, are going to have one or the other because we are pursuing either one kind of riches or the other. That's probably the most of us here in this room. We're pursuing one vigorously, and maybe we're not quite as concerned as the other kind of riches, but I simply want to tell you this, that if you see anybody in this world, and they have glamour, and lifestyle, and car, and position, and possessions, and prosperity, and property... Be careful that you don't ever be envious of them because some people that have the one kind of wealth but not the other, they can also be the most empty, vacuous, banal, superficial, and hopeless people you're ever going to meet. So it would be far better for you to get that priority straight. Pursue the kind of wealth that comes from knowing Christ Jesus your Lord as your highest priority and let whatever else come by the wayside. All right? Christ says, I know they're rich and you are poor, but you have a different kind of richness to you. You have me as your king. That is true riches. Now, he also says here that he knows their tribulation. We should know the word tribulation. This is an important theological term. It's the Greek word thlipsis, which is very hard for our English speaking lips to say. It's the word thlipsis. Now, all I want to say here at this point about tribulation is simply this there are some Christians that will tell you. Um, our, mostly our dispensationalist friends. We love them, though we disagree with them on this point. Some people will tell you that the church will not go through tribulation. Some people will tell you that the church will be removed before it ever has to experience tribulation. One of the reasons they say that is the word church is not present anywhere between chapters 3 and 22 in the book of Revelation. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I disagree with that interpretation. The church does... Will and has experienced much tribulation in this world. And take the Smyrna Church as a case in point here. That if you don't believe that, look at how the early church suffered. And if you don't believe that, look at how some of the faithful reformers suffered. And if you don't believe that, look at how some of the covenanters suffered in Scotland. And if you don't believe that, look at how some of the Chinese Christians are suffering even this very Lord's Day as they hide from the government, look at some of the Nigerian Christians this very day today as they're hoping that they're not stormed by uh, violent invaders breaking into their worship services. If you don't believe that the church is going to experience tribulation in this world, I simply submit to you for your consideration Christ's letter to the church of Smyrna. Because it seems apparent to me that there is much difficulty in this world even for the Christian church. Okay, we'll come back to that topic on another occasion. I just wanted to throw that out there for you this morning. Let's draw our attention to verse 9. We have somewhat of an unusual turn of phrase here where it says that um, he knows the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Did Did that phrase pique your interest? Synagogue of Satan? What's happening here? Let me just back up and explain a little bit about the ancient Roman Emperor, Empire to you just for a moment. So the Roman Empire, huge, vast territory, right? Many different tribes, many different people groups, a lot of diversity within that geographic, massive geographic boundaries. And so one of the things that the Romans did in order to control these variety of different peoples and groups and tribes and, and essentially nations under their, under their authority is that they had a policy of of tolerance when it came to religion. And that is to say that they would tolerate various different religions of the different tribes and peoples, provided that that they would also offer a simple sacrifice of worship to the Roman emperor. And if you're of the polytheistic religions of the ancient world, that's not a big deal, because how much work is it to really just add one more god to the pantheon, right? Right? And so that's one of the ways that they maintained control and unity within the massive Roman Empire is by this policy of religious toleration given that they would sacrifice to the empire. Now, that brings up an interesting exception clause with Judaism because Judaism is a monotheistic religion and the Jews would not sacrifice likewise to the emperor. They're willing to go so far as giving a a token of honor but not worship. But see, the Jews, they had come into some sort of a grandfather clause here that accepted them from this emperor worship because the Jews had essentially been passed down from the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And not only that, but they were seen as somewhat difficult to govern Given Judas Maccabeus and so forth, Pontius Pilate, found, Pilate, Pontius Pilate found that out the hard way as well. And so the Jews had this kind of this exception clause, this umbrella clause, this grandfathered in clause where they were permitted to be able to continue to exist without having to make the emperor worship sacrifice. Now herein is the, is the, the tricky wicket for the early Christians because the early Christians were initially considered as a splinter group of Judaism. They were considered to be a subgroup, a a splinter group, an offshoot of Judaism. And so the early church initially, they experienced the blessing of this umbrella clause, grandfather clause. And so they were not initially harshly persecuted because people thought they were simply a, a kind of a strange branch of Judaism. However, As time went on, it became more and more apparent that this was not so. For one thing, every time the Apostle Paul goes into a different city and he's preaching the gospel, what we see is that very often there's sociological disturbance in the city. Right? So go with me very quickly. Let's move quickly this morning. Go with me to Acts chapter 19. I just want to show you an example of this sociological disturbance that happens when the gospel shows up. So in the city of Ephesus, just 25 miles south of Smyrna, as I've already mentioned to you, Paul goes to the city of of Ephesus and he begins preaching there. And the claims of the apostle Paul are startling because what he's doing essentially is assailing and attacking the city's main trade, which is Artemis worship at their temple. And Paul goes in preaching and he basically says, no, you cannot worship any other gods. There's only one true and living God. And this causes a commotion in the city of Ephesus so that the commotion turns into a riot. And the more places Paul goes preaching this anti-idolatry message, the more unsettling it is, the more the riots begin to turn out. And all of a sudden the Jews are kind of concerned, hey, maybe we don't want to be associated with this. And so as Christianity upsets and disturbs this idolatrous pattern of material wealth and paganism and state control, some of the Jewish believers, first century, are saying to themselves, maybe it would behoove us to distance ourselves from those Christians. You see? And so as they begin to do that, they are more and more willing to turn the Christians over to the authority of the states bringing the Smyrna Christians under a direct assault of persecution. And this is probably why here that they are called the synagogue of Satan. Because what is Satan other than the one who slanders and accuses? So what appears to us to have happened in the city of Smyrna is that the Christians went to the Jewish synagogues hoping for that umbrella clause tolerance Uh, grandfather clause of peace to be able to worship there. The same God, same same Old Testament Bible, right? Hoping for that peace. And what it seems as though happened is that, no, the Jews instead turned them over to the authoritarian state control and that therefore the Smyrnans were subject to some of the harshest persecution because they would not worship the pagan emperor. And that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. So Christ commends them for their faithfulness. Let's turn then secondly to their situation. Let's go to verse 10. By the way, I hope you have your Bible out with me as we go through these passages together. That is best practices for us. The situation in verse 10. So Christ addresses them and he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is, as we know, one of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible. It is an imperative. It is a command. Don't be afraid. But it's also a command that comes saturated with grace. Because every time he tells, he commands us not to be afraid, he also provides for us the comfort that we need. And so Christ here is telling the Smyrnans, he's giving them a bit of of prognostication here about what's going to happen to you. You are going to suffer. This is the real situation for you. And in fact, Christ points, notice this, through and past uh, the unbelieving pagan state to the ultimate source of that demonic manifestation. What is it? The devil himself. Okay? He doesn't say, take up arms against your oppressors. No, he doesn't say to... Uh, to essentially disdain them. Instead, what he says is he points to the real power behind the power. And behind the state authoritarian pagan control, the devil himself lurks. And that's why, Gospel Fellowship, I wanted to read Job chapter 1 as our supplementary biblical text this morning, because I do want to remind you that the devil is real. The devil does have power, but the devil does not have ultimate power. In fact, the story of Job is particularly helpful for us because it reminds us that Satan's power only extends to the degree that God permits him to go, and no further. Okay. The story of Job, and it's not just once here that God sets a delimitation around Satan's power in Job chapter 1, verse 6, but he does it again, and each time Satan comes to God asking for permission to destroy Job, God sets the parameters and he sets the delimitations for how much satanic control the devil is allowed to have. He can only go so far. And so in one sense, even though this passage in Revelation 2 reminds us that there is a very real satanic power, it also reminds us, comfortingly so, that Satan is limited by the sovereign purposes of God. Always limited. So to make a metaphor for you, Satan is something like a dangerous dog that is chained to the porch. He can only go so far. Uh, He is a fighter with one arm tied behind his back. He is a rattlesnake with the the venom having been extracted. The bite still hurts, yes, but he doesn't have the power that he would like to have over you. And that's why Jesus tells the church of Smyrna here that he does have the power to throw you into prison, but notice he doesn't have the power to take away your life if that's not what God permits. Prison. Difficult for sure. Wouldn't want you to experience it. I wouldn't want to experience it any more than you would. Prison is a miserable experience, no doubt about that. And many Christians have gone to prison, quite literally. We're not necessarily talking symbolic uh, images here. We're we're talking literal imprisonment. Many have gone through it for the sake of Christ. But, But notice here, even in the language of this prison term that Jesus is talking about here, He says you're going to be tested for 10 days. Why does he add that detail of 10 days? You thought about that? What's that that about? 10 days. Well, it's quite relatively a short time, isn't it? 10 days? You can endure anything for 10 days. In fact, um, in the book of Revelation, there are a number of periods of duration in terms of time and months and years and things like that. Ten days is the shortest of the durations that the Book of Revelation mentions. We know, of course, about the thousand years in chapter twenty. Very interesting text. We'll come to that weeks from now, months from now. You know of the uh, the two witnesses in Revelation eleven three that are said to preach for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. But relatively speaking, 10 days is one of the shortest terms that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. So what does that mean? Well, let me answer that by asking you a question. So far in our series of Revelation, what would you say John's favorite book is of the Old Testament? Are you kind of building a picture here? I mean, he's got many, but what would you say? What does he like? What book of the Old Testament does Revelation quote quite frequently? Daniel. Yes, obviously, he's drawn a lot of support from Daniel. So, as it turns out, there is a reference to 10 days of testing in the book of Daniel. It's Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. And so, it, what it seems that John is saying here is that there will be a period of testing of limited duration. And ironically, Daniel is in kind of the same boat as the Smyrnans, isn't he? Those those three things, we have material wealth, we have paganism, and we have authoritarian state control in the book of Daniel. And Daniel, as you recall, in chapter one, he refuses to take on the syncretistic compromise of the pagan diet. And so Daniel instead, what does he do? He eats the faithful diet of the Old Testament law for those 10 days. And you would think that that would make him weaker towards the end. But after the 10 days of testing, what happens to Daniel's strength He's stronger. Yes. And so here, it seems to be the implication then that Smyrnans, though your testing is real and though it is diabolical and though it is obviously real suffering and persecution here, for one thing... You can endure anything if you know it's going to be brief in duration. And secondly, Smyrnans, you will be all the stronger for having gone through it, just as Daniel was stronger when he resisted syncretism too under the Babylonian Empire. You will be stronger for having held fast the faith. And that then is going to bring us to the exhortation in this text. Let's look at verse 10 in this passage here. Jesus then gives them their command. Each one of the churches, they, give a, they get a command, right? What does it say? Do not fear, then, what, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But here we go. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. So what is it that? That Jesus seeks from his people. What does he want from us? Faithfulness. Never in the Bible are you demanded to be successful. Never in the Bible are you you expected to be popular. Never in the Scriptures are you expected to have the approval of society more broadly. Uh, Never in the Scriptures are, are you told to be on the right side of history, as it were, as defined by anybody but the Lord Himself. The one thing that is expected of all Christians, including every single one of us in this room, is that we would be found faithful at the end of your life. That's it. Notice here what kind of faithfulness. Faithfulness unto death. When's that going to be? I don't know, when you're 100 maybe. Or 90 or 80 or 70 or next week. But whatever it is, Christ demands of you faithfulness. And that requires you to be tested. Okay? Because all things that are precious are, are tested. Your testing is going to be different from the testing that I'm going to endure, I imagine. At least I think. Okay? We may be tested together, I don't know. But every faithful Christian is going to be tested, and sometimes tested quite severely. How do you test metal? You test metal by bending it until it gives. How do you, how do you test a, a jar or a, or a vase? You, you test it by pouring in water to see if it leaks. How do you test a bow? You test a bow by pulling it back as far as it goes. How do you test an arrow? You test an arrow by letting it loose and seeing if it flies straight. And Probably all of us in the room, we're going to be tested in various ways. And it may even be that some of the testing that we're going to experience is a smirning type of between a rock and a hard place testing between authoritarianism on one hand and paganism on the other. That could be. I'm not making any predictions. I'm just saying... It seems realistic to me. Uh, So Christ then holds out for them a greater trophy. The trophy that he offers out here is the crown of life. Notice this. If you endure, you will be given the crown of life. This is something that the apostles do from time to time speak of in other places in the New Testament. For instance, Paul and second timothy 4:8 says this henceforth there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness with the lord which the lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing right so that's paul's motivation same too with peter peter uh, 1 peter 5:4 says when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory and so christ holds out this crown as the ultimate reward for fidelity now i do have to bring up one historical note here because i think it's relevant to the text uh, there, were, there was something that was said about the city of smyrna in particular and they called it the crown city and there's a reason for that as i mentioned it's a port city on on the bay of the aegean sea and uh, the city of smyrna itself had a, a large mountain called Mount Pegasus, which was visible from the land. In fact, if you were a sailor, you saw Mount Pegas. If you wanted to pull into port in Smyrna, that's what you aimed at. And as you approached the port city of Smyrna, they had literally built the city around Mount Pegasus, such that they called it the crown city, because the city built around with its temples and its amphitheaters and its metroplex and all of the things that they built around this beautiful, rich, extravagant port city. They called the city the crown of Mount Pegasus, And so there's, there's probably no coincidence here that when Christ holds out to you the crown of life, it is in direct contradistinction to this crown city that the world is holding out to you as a simultaneous but inferior offering. Choose one and aim at it. But you probably can't have both. And even on the coins that they used in the city, they had a, a goddess, the goddess of Sybil, who was an unusually chubby female goddess. You can look it up yourself if you don't believe me. But on the, the coins that they used in the city of Smyrna had Sybil, the chubby goddess, and on her head was a crown And interestingly, the crown itself was depicted as the city itself with its temple and its stadiums and its arenas and so forth. And so there's a real choice here being held out for the Smyrnans. Pursue the crown that does not fade or pursue the crown of the city. But you can't have both, at least not for long. I want to end here this morning... With an illustration from church history that I just cannot pass up because it's it's too good. There was a an early an early Christian called uh, Polycarp. Maybe you've heard of him before. So the first century in Christianity, you have your main characters. Obviously, you have Jesus of Nazareth; he's the Lord. And you have the apostle Paul, who was an important. Uh, um, exponent of Christianity, you have the Apostle Peter, etc. When you get to the second century, though, after the after the age of the close of of the canon in Scripture, you have other early Christians that are of, of high importance for the early church. You've got Ignatius, you've got Irenaeus, you've got Justin Martyr, you've got Clement, and you have Polycarp. Now, I hope you remember the name Polycarp because he actually came from the city of Smyrna. He did as his, his hometown. In fact, Polycarp eventually became the bishop of the city of Smyrna, which is to say one of the most important pastors in that particular city with various church plants, probably in people's homes and things like this. So Polycarp in AD 156 becomes a direct fulfillment of this Smyrna letter prophecy of persecution because at age 86 years old, 86 years old, That A.D. 156, he is actually turned into the authorities for his Christian faith. 86 years old. You, do you mess with a guy that's an octogenarian? I mean, is he worth it? And they did, and they brought him in, and they, uh, they exposed him to interrogation. They offered him the opportunity to recant his Christian faith. He did not. And at age 86, Polycarp was willing to be burned at the stake for the sake of Jesus. And as they ignited the fires, church history records this language from Polycarp. Listen to what he said as he was dying. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong, referring to Christ. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior, referring to the emperor worship offering? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is is quenched, but you are ignorance of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so even as Polycarp uh, accepted his eternal reward, he accepted the fate of one who stands fast unto death and therefore receives the crown of life. And so Jesus tells us in the last line of our text this morning, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Two deaths. It's certain that we will experience the one. It is not at all necessary that we experience the second. Praise be to Christ. He has saved us from it. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. As strongly as we must speak about these things, we thank you, Father, that Christ is stronger than even our greatest persecution and suffering in this life.
1: We give all praise and thanks to you, O God, in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.